Chapter One of the Caribou Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire M. The Caribou Trail, a chronicle of the gold fields of British Columbia, by Agnes C. Lout. The Argonauts. Early in 1849. The sleepy quiet of Victoria, Vancouver Island, was disturbed by the arrival of scraggling groups of ragged, nondescript wanderers, who were neither trappers nor settlers. They carried blanket packs on their backs, and leather bags belted securely round the waist, close to their pistols. They did not wear moccasins after the fashion of trappers, but heavy, knee-high, hobnailed boots. In place of guns over their shoulders, they had picks and hammers, and such stout sticks as mountaineers use in climbing. They did not foregather with the Indians. They shunned the Indians, and had little to say to anyone. They volunteered little information as to whence they had come, or whither they were going. They sought out Roderick Finlayson, cheap trader for the Hudson's Bay Company. They wanted provisions from the company, yes, rice, flour, ham, salt, pepper, sugar, and tobacco, and at the smithy they demanded shovels, picks, iron ladles, and wire screens. It was only when they came to pay that Finlayson felt sure of what he had already guessed. They unstrapped those little leather bags round under their cartridge belts and produced in tiny gold nuggets the price of what they had bought. Finlayson did not know exactly what to do. The fur trader hated the miner. The miner, wherever he went, sounded the knell of fur trading, and the trapper did not like to have his game preserve overrun by fellows who scared off all animals from traps, set fire going to clear away underbrush, and owed responsibility to no authority. No doubt these men were argonauts, drifted up from the gold diggings of California. No doubt they were searching for new mines, but who had ever heard of gold in Vancouver Island, or in New Caledonia, as the mainland was named? If there had been gold, would not the company have found it? Finlayson probably thought the easiest way to get rid of the unwelcome visitors was to let them go on into the dangers of the wilds, and then spread the news of the disappointment bound to be theirs. He handled their nuggets doubtfully. Who knew for a certainty that it was gold anyhow? They bade him lay it on the smith's anvil and strike it with a hammer. Finlayson, smiling skeptically, did as he was told. The nuggets flattened to a yellow leaf as fine and flexible as silk. Finlayson took the nuggets at eleven dollars an ounce and sent the gold down to San Francisco, very doubtful that the real value would prove. It proved sixteen dollars to the ounce. For seven or eight years afterwards, rumours kept floating into the company's forts of fines of gold. Many of the company's servants drifted away to California in the wake of the 49ers, and the company found it hard to keep its trappers from deserting all up and down the Pacific coast. The quest for gold had become a sort of yellow-fever madness. Men flung certainty to the winds and trekked recklessly to California, to Oregon, to the hinterland of the country round Colville and Okanagan. Yet nothing occurred to cause any excitement in Victoria. 
there is a short-lived flurry over the discovery in Queen Charlotte Islands of a nugget valued at six hundred dollars and a vein of gold-bearing quartz. But the nugget was an isolated freak, the quartz could not be worked at a profit, and the movement suddenly died out. There were, however, signs of what was to follow. The chief trader at the little fur post of Yale reported that when he rinsed sand round in his camp frying-pan, fine flakes and scales of yellow could be seen at the bottom. Footnote. The same, of course, can be done today with a like result at many places along the Fraser and even on the Saskatchewan. End footnote. But gold and such minute particles would not satisfy the men who were hunting nuggets. It required treatment by quicksilver, though Maclean, the chief factor at Kamloops, kept all the specks and flakes brought to his post as samples from 1852 to 1856, he had less than would fill a half-pint bottle. If a half-pint is counted as a half-pound, and the gold at the company's price of $11 an ounce, it will be seen why four years of such discoveries did not set Victoria on fire. It has been so with every discovery of gold in the history of the world. The silent, shaggy, ragged first scouts of the gold stampede wander houseless for years from hill to hill, from gully to gully, up rivers, up stream beds, up dry water courses, seeking the source of those yellow specks seen far down the mountains near the sea. Precipice, rapids, avalanche, winter storm take their toll of dead. Corpses are washed down in the spring floods, or the thaw reveals a prospector's shack, smashed by a snowslide under which lie two dead partners. Then, by and by, when everyone has forgotten about it, a shaggy man comes out of the wilds with a leather bag, the bag goes to the mint, and the world goes mad. Victoria went to sleep again. When men drifted in to trade dust and nuggets for picks and flour, the fur trader smiled, and rightly surmised that the California diggings were playing out. Though Vancouver Island was nominally a crown colony, it was still, with New Caledonia, practically a fief of the Hudson's Bay Company. James Douglas was governor. He was assisted in the administration by a council of three, nominated by himself, John Todd, James Cooper, and Roderick Finlayson. In 1856, a colonial legislature was elected and met in Victoria in August for the first time. Footnote. This was the first legislative assembly to meet west of Upper Canada in what is now the Canadian Dominion. It consisted of seven members as follows. J.D. Pemberton, James Yates, E.E. E. Langford, J.S. Helmkin, Thomas J. Skinner, John Muir, and J.F. Kennedy. Langford, however, retired almost immediately after the election, and J.W. McKay was elected in his stead. The portraits of five of the members are preserved in the group which appears as the frontispiece to this volume. The photograph was probably taken at a later period. At any rate, two of the members, Muir and Kennedy, are missing. End footnote. But in fact, the company owned the colony, and its will was supreme in the government. John Work was the company's chief factor at Victoria, and Finlayson was chief trader. Because California and Oregon had gone American, 
some small British warships lay at Esquimalt Harbour. The little fort had expanded beyond the stockade. The governor's house was to the east of the stockade. A new church had been built, and the Reverend Edward Cridge, afterwards known as Bishop Cridge, was the rector. Two schools had been built, and inside the fort were perhaps forty-five employees. Inside and outside lived some eight hundred people. But grass grew in the roads. There was no noise but the church bell or the fort bell, or the flapping of a sail while a ship came to anchor. Three hundred acres about the fort were worked by the company as a farm, which gave employment to about two dozen workmen, and on which were perhaps a hundred cattle and a score of brood mares. The company also had a sawmill. Buildings of huge squared timbers flanked three sides of the inner stockades, the dining hall, the cookhouse, the bunkhouse, the store, the trader's house. There were two bastions, and from each cannon pointed. Close to the wicket at the main entrance stood the post office. Only a fringe of settlement went beyond the company's farm. The fort was sound asleep, secure in an eternal certainty that the domain which it guarded would never be overrun by American settlers as California and Oregon had been. The little admiralty cruisers which lay at Esquimalt were guarantee that New Caledonia should never be stampeded into a republic by an inrush of aliens. Then, as now, it was Victoria's boast that it was more English than England. So passed Christmas of fifty-seven, with plum pudding and a roasted ox, and toast to the crown and the company, though we cannot be quite sure that the company was not put before the crown in the souls of the fur traders. Then, in March 1858, just when Victoria felt most secure as the capital of a perpetual fur realm, something happened. A few Yankee prospectors had gone down on the Hudson's Bay steamer Otter to San Francisco in February with gold dust and nuggets from New Caledonia to exchange money at the Mint. The Hudson's Bay men had thought nothing of this. Other treasure seekers had come to New Caledonia before and had gone back to San Francisco disappointed. But in March, these men returned to Victoria, and with them came a mad rabble of gold-crazy prospectors. A city of tents sprang up overnight round Victoria. The smithy was besieged for picks, for shovels, for iron ladles. Men stood in long lines for their turn at the trading store. By canoe, by dugout, by pack-horse and on foot, they planned to ascend the Fraser, and they mobbed the company for passage to Langley by the first steamer out from Victoria. Goods were paid for in cash. Before Finlayson could believe his own eyes, he had two million dollars in his safe, some of it for purchases, some of it on deposit for safekeeping. Though the company gave no guarantee to the depositors, and simply sealed each man's leather pouch as it was placed in the safe, no complaint was ever made against it of dishonesty or unfair treatment. Without waiting instructions from England, and with poignant memory of Oregon, Governor Douglas at once clapped on a license of twenty-one shillings a month for mining privileges under the British Crown. Thus he obtained a rough registration of the men going to the up-country, but thousands passed Victoria altogether, and went in by pack-train from Okanagan, 
or rafted across from Puget Sound. The month of March had not ended when the first band of gold hunters arrived and settled down a mile and a half below Yale. Another boatload of 850 came in April. In four months, 67 vessels, carrying from a 100 to a 1,000 men each, had come up from San Francisco to Victoria. Crews deserted their ships, clerks deserted the company, trappers turned miners, and took to the gold bars. Before Victoria awoke to what it was all about, 20,000 people were camped under tents outside the stockade, and the air was full of the wildest rumors of fabulous gold finds. The snow had been heavy in 58. In the spring, the Fraser rolled to the sea a swollen flood. Against the turbid current worked tipsy rafts towed by wheezy steamers or leaky old sailing craft, and rickety rowboats raced cockleshell canoes for the gold bars above. Ashore, the banks of the river were lined with foot passengers toiling under heavy packs, wagons to which clung human forms on every foot of space, and long rows of pack-horses bogged in the flood of the overflowing river. By September, 10,000 men were rocking and washing for gold round Yale. As in the late Kootenay and in the still later Klondike stampede, American cities at the coast benefited most. Victoria was a ten-hour trip from the mainland. Whatcom and Townsend, on the American side, advertised the advantages of the Washington route to the Fraser River gold mines. A mushroom boom in town lots had sprung up at these points before Victoria was well awake. By the time speculators reached Victoria, the best lots in that place had already been bought by the company's men, and some of the substantial fortunes of Victoria date from this period. Though the river was so high that the richest bars could not be worked till late in August, $500,000 in gold was taken from the bed of the Fraser during the first six months of 58. This amount, divided among the 10,000 men who were on the bars around Yale, would not average as much as they could have earned as junior clerks with the fur company or as peanut peddlers in San Francisco. But not so does the mind of the miner work. Here was gold to be scooped up for nothing by the first comer, and more vessels plowed their way up the Fraser, though Governor Douglas sought to catch those who came by Puget Sound and evaded license by charging six dollars toll each for all canoes on the Fraser, and twelve dollars for each vessel with decks. Later, these tolls were disallowed by the home authorities. The prompt action of Douglas, however, had the effect of keeping the mining movement in hand. Though the miners were of the same class as the Argonauts of California, they never broke into the lawlessness that compelled vigilance committees in San Francisco. Judge Howe gives the letter of a treasure seeker who reached the Fraser in April, the substance of which is as follows. We are now located 30 miles above the junction of the Fraser and the Thompson on Fraser River. About a fourth of the canoes that attempt to come up are lost in the rapids which extend from Fort Yale nearly to the forks. A few days ago, six men were drowned by their canoe upsetting. There is more danger going down than coming up. There can be no doubt about this country being immensely rich in gold. Almost every bar on the river from Yale up 
will pay from three dollars to seven dollars a day to the man at the present stage of water when the river gets low which will be about august the bars will pay very well one hundred and ninety-six dollars was taken out by one man last winter in a few hours but the water was then at its lowest stage the gold on the bars is all very fine and hard to save in a rocker but with quicksilver properly managed good wages can be made almost anywhere on the river as long as the bars are actually covered with water we have not yet been able to find a place where we can work anything but rockers if we could get a sulis to work we could make from twelve dollars to sixteen dollars a day each we only commenced work yesterday and we are satisfied that when we get fully under way we can make from five dollars to seven dollars a day each the prospect is better as we go up the river on the bars the gold is not any coarser but there is more of it there are also in that region diggings of coarser gold on small streams that empty into the main river a few men have been there and prove the existence of rich diggings by bringing specimens back with them. The Indians all along the river have gold in their possession that they say they dug themselves, but they will not tell where they get it, nor allow small parties to go up after it. I have seen pieces in their possession weighing two pounds. The Indians above are disposed to be troublesome, and went into a camp twenty miles above us, and forcibly took provisions and arms from a party of four men, and cut too severely with their knives. They came to our camp the same day, and insisted that we should trade with them or leave the country. We design to remain here until we can get a hundred men together, when we will move up above the falls, and do just what we please without regard to the Indians. We are at present the highest up of any white men on the river, and we must go higher to be satisfied. I don't apprehend any danger from the Indians at present, but there will be hell to pay after a while. There is a pack trail from Hope, but it cannot be travelled till the snow is off the mountains. The prices of provisions are as follows. Flour, $35 per hundred weight. Pork, a dollar a pound. Beans, 50 cents a pound. And other things in proportion. Every party that starts from the Sound should have their own supplies to last them three or four months, and they should bring the largest sized Chinook canoes, as small ones are very liable to swamp in the rapids. Each canoe should be provided with thirty fathoms of strong line for towing over swift water, and every man well armed. The Indians here can beat anything alive stealing. They will soon be able to steal a man's food after he has eaten it. Within two miles of Yale, eighty Indians and thirty white men were working the gold bars, and log boarding houses and saloons sprang up along the river bank as if by magic. Naturally, the last comers of fifty-eight were too late to get a place on the gold bars, and they went back to the coast in disgust, calling the gold stampede the Fraser River humbug. Nevertheless, men were washing, sulacing, rocking and digging gold as far as Lillouette. Often the day's yield ran as high as eight hundred dollars a man, and the higher up the treasure-seekers pushed their way, the coarser grew the gold flakes and grains. Would the golden lure lead finally to the mother-load of all the yellow washings? That is the hope that draws the prospector from river to stream, from stream to dry gully bed, from dry gully to precipice edge, and often over the edge to death or fortune.'
Exactly fifty-six years from the first rush of fifty-eight in the month of April, I sat on the banks of the Fraser at Yale, and punted across the rapids in a flat-bottomed boat and swirled in and out among the eddies of the famous bars. A Siwash family lived there by fishing with clumsy wicker baskets. Higher up could be seen some Chinamen, but whether they were fishing or washing we could not tell. Two transcontinental railroads skirted the canyon, one on each side, and the tents of a thousand construction workers stood where once were the camps of the gold-seekers banded together for protection. When we came back across the river, an old, old man met us and sat talking to us on the bank. He had come to the Fraser in that first rush of fifty-eight. He had been one of the leaders against the murderous bands of Indians. Then he had pushed on up the river to Caribou, traveling, as he told us, by the Indian trails over Jacob's ladders, wicker and pole swings to serve as bridges across chasms, wherever the float or sign of mineral might lead him. Both on the Fraser and in Caribou he had found his share of luck and ill luck, and he plainly regretted the passing of that golden age of danger and adventure. But, he said, pointing his trembling old hands at the two railways, if we prospectors hadn't blazed the trail of the canyon, you wouldn't have your railroads here today. They only followed the trail we first cut and then built. We followed the float up, and they followed us. What the trapper was to the fur trade, the prospector was to the mining era that ushered civilization into the wilds with a blare of dance halls and wine and wassail and greed. Ragged, poor, roofless, grub-staked by partner or outfitter on a basis of half-profit, the prospector stands as the eternal type of the trail-maker for finance. End of chapter 1